0: How are we doing? And welcome to the Mill Art Podcast, Lesson 17, Chapter 51, The Allies Turn the Tide. I'm your host, Joe Karsanovich. Joining me today, special guest, Connor Glancy, will come on after the key terms. Um, he will help us get into this chapter narrative summary, and then we'll do a little discussion at the end um, and get to really pick his brains about what he thought about the chapter. We'll get right after these key terms and concepts I had to look up a lot of pronunciations on YouTube. We'll see how these go. Uh, First term, Kesselschlacht, German word for battle of encirclement. That first portion of the word, the Kessels, is German for cauldron, evidently. But this is the German style of encircling their opponent and then basically just closing in on that pocket of their enemy until they surrendered. Took a lot of prisoners. Took a lot of prisoners this way, and that was a much quicker way because the Germans like to go fast. So it's battle of encirclement, Kesselschlacht. It's very important to them. Uh, next key term, Battle of Stalingrad. Stalingrad, um, it's a, it was a city in Russia, battle in the Soviet Union, Germans versus Soviet Union, of course. It was part of the German Operation Blue, which we'll talk about later on in the podcast. It's basically a street fight. Think of it that way. Um, we'll be drawing some parallels to Buckner and Camp Shea, namely, later on in the podcast. Lots of tactical stuff going on here. It was a knock-down, drag-out fight. Basically, um, Germans try to come in, take this really important town to protect their flank, and they have a very difficult time against a tough Soviet defense that originally was partially encircled by the Germans. Then their counteroffensive actually encircled the Germans inside the city, and the Germans had no way of... Um, really getting out of this and they lost an entire field army i think the book says they started out with about two hundred fifty thousand troops and walked away or really surrendered about 90 at the end of it and they really just really couldn't really couldn't come back from that so that stalingrad was really important bottom line because it really stopped that german advance to the east um and this is a major turning point for the allies especially the russians who had given so much already in bloodshed so the battles Plural, Battles of El Alamein. I just think of this one um, for the Texans out there, Battle of the Alamo. I think of it as a defensive position. It's a good way to remember it. It was a British battle to protect the Suez Canal in Egypt. Um, As you know, the British have been fighting for a long time against the Germans, not having a whole lot of success up to this point. Um, But this part in Egypt was really important. This first battle, they were able to hold their ground. Which was really important. And then the commander of the North African campaign for the British, uh, Bernard Monty Montgomery, um, came up with this strategy. Operation Lightfoot, which can kind of be a key term in of itself. I'm, I promise I try not to make a habit of making up a new key term every time we do one of these things. But Operation Lightfoot was the second, another name for the second battle of the El Alamein. And it was essentially a bite and hold operation which I think is something great you could throw in your paper to talk about that operational level that we have. At least I have a difficult time talking about. It was basically a strategy of where they would just, I mean, I'm going to butcher this a little bit here, but they would just basically move in, not very quickly, uh, against the Germans, but they would just take a big chunk out be very deliberate, and then set up and defend their flanks. Imagine it as like, you're going to punch through the defense, but you're immediately going to slow down and protect your flanks so you can't get encircled, because they knew the Germans loved it when you ran right up the middle, and so they could encircle you. Um, Operation Lightfoot, led by Bernard Monty Montgomery uh, in the second battle of El Alamein, really won it for them, and when they did that, the Germans really pushed back, and we're going to talk about the significance of that, but protecting the Suez Canal was critical to keep the British colonies involved in the fight, and it ultimately led to the British turning the tide there. Uh, and then now we get to talk about the Americans' turn of the tide, uh, Admiral Ernest J. King, Admiral of the U.S. Navy Fleet. He was really tied in with the Guadalcan- Guadalcanal Campaign. Uh, I think Guadalcanal Campaign could be called the Solomon Island Campaign because Guadalcanal is really just one part of it. Um, but basically this Admiral King... Was very aggressive. He has a quote in the book saying something about like you know they were concerned that the Marines weren't going to have enough support, weren't going to have enough logistics, and of course, in the typical Marine fashion, said, "Now nah, we'll put we'll if we have to put the Marines on a shoestring or something, they'll go and fight." Um, which which obviously ended up being true. The Marines are very good moving into the Guadal- Guadalcanal campaign. Um, there's actually some conflict between King and another key term from the last chapter, uh, General Douglas MacArthur. Classic Army Navy rivalry trying to decide who will win the Solomon Islands for the Allies. Ended up being a combined arms, or no, this is not combined arms, this would be a combined force maneuver on these islands. It was three stages, the army got two of them, the navy got one of them, so I guess MAC went out in the end. But the Guadalcanal campaign, campaign specifically on the island of Guadalcanal, was holding a ridge, holding an airfield, so that the rest of the Solomon Island area could be supported um, because they were t- we were taking the island of New Guinea and moving up ultimately to this, this place called uh, Rabal, R-A-B-A-U-L, and that was a key in the Pacific, and the Marines were able to hold the Guadalcanal, hold this ridge, hold that airfield. Um, they ended up calling it Bloody Ridge. There were a lot of hard fighting. Um, but in short, that was a very, very important strategic move to hold that area as well as operationally to keep those air uh, airfields open to support the surrounding areas. There were some blunders in there by some other naval officers, but you're going to have to listen to the rest of the podcast to get that. That really closes up the key terms section. And on to the chapter narrative summary. I'd like to step back and welcome our guests here. we got Army Lacrosse's very own Connor Glancy. Connor. How are we doing tonight? Hey,
1: doing great, Joe. Thanks for bringing me on.
0: Hey, of course, love to have you. Uh, we'll dive right in. Connor's going to take us back. Uh, going to do a little recap of World War II up until 1942. Connor,
1: take it away. Yeah, so uh, looking back at the last couple chapters, uh, with the German years of victory, they are able to have multiple victories in the West, pushing through uh, Poland, Denmark, no- Norway, and Belgium. Eventually, they push all the way up until Dunkirk, France, taking out the uh, British and French armies there, making them retreat to Britain. Then uh, we go through the multiple air raids, really causing a hassle, hassle for Britain at that time. Uh, then they turn east, looking, looking in 1941 to take out the Soviets in one decisive campaign. However, as we learn, uh, they're unable to, to do that. The Soviets held on until the winter and uh, were able to survive for another year. Looking at the other Axis powers, the last chapter we learned about Japan, really controlling all of the Pacific Islands, making multiple offensives there. Uh, However, the Battle of Midway stopped these offensives and really uh, set the stage for U.S. operations there. So moving into this chapter, the authors describe it as a crucial year in the war with a series of turning points. The Axis powers are not looking for a long, protracted war. They're looking to make multiple offensives. They know they're not going to be able to win in a war of attrition. So Germany and Italy are looking to take the Suez Canal going through North Africa and they're also looking to make another offensive against the Soviets, take them out because they think that the Soviet army is weak at this time. So moving forward, they talk about the three turning points of this of this year, which end up turning turning the war in favor of the Allies. Talk about the ba- Battle of Stalingrad, where Soviets are able to effectively stop the German forces, as well as as well as the battles of El Alamein and the Guadalcanal campaign.
0: Great stuff. Said the whole thing with a dip in too, ladies and gentlemen. Now that. That's some talent right there. Now we're on to Section 2, the planning and and prepping for Operation Blue. This was the German plan to go into Russia and make a big hit, like Connor said. They really needed to get on the offensive here and fast because they're running out of supplies and things weren't going great for them. Um, But Russians were expecting a hit at Moscow. They really, really built that up, and that presented an opportunity um for hitler really but people people in russia were against the build-up in moscow people in germany were trying to hit moscow um, but hitler said no to his generals he said hey we're gonna go southeast instead they wanted to go through stalingrad to uh call i think that is how that is how i learned the pronunciation on youtube earlier but long long story shorter that's where the oil was the uh the germans need a lot of oil
1: yeah, so uh, the German army really highly mechanized, needed the oil to keep their operations going. So this was a huge strategic uh, objective for the Germans. Yeah.
0: Stalingrad, Stalingrad was important because it was basically, you look at the map in the book, it's like to the direct north of all these oil fields. So if the the Germans couldn't, couldn't take this oil without taking Stalingrad, and Stalingrad had a lot of rail, had a lot of logistical support. So basically if they tried to take the oil without Stalingrad, they'd be trapped uh, against the mountains by the the, by the russians and if they just took stalingrad they wouldn't get the oil so they had to do both
1: yeah and uh the authors go through many short shortfalls with the german plan in this uh, operation blow they talk about how the germans expected the casualties would exceed replacements for this operation which doesn't make any sense at all also there um there's no replacement for the horses as we learned many of them died in this in the Soviet War in 1941, and the motor travel is dismal and all over Russia. Also, the, the German army was split into two separate armies, with one being highly mechanized while the other was not. It was a light infantry, to, a light infantry army, and they couldn't keep in sync. They weren't able to move at the same pace, which would, as we move forward in the chapter, provide serious problems for the Germans. The Germans had 42 divisions total for this operation, However, 20 of them were non-German divisions. And with the German allies, many of them hated each other and hated the Germans as well. So they had to strategically place these divisions so that the armies fighting next to each other didn't hate each other too much and could actually work together. Furthermore, the German intelligence was just absolutely terrible. They severely underestimated the, the Soviet strength of how many men, tanks, artillery, and everything else they had. I don't remember the exact numbers but they were uh, they're really off.
0: It was really bad. It's worth a look in the book if you if you haven't seen that. At one point they're like off by a factor of 4. Pretty crazy. Just wanted to, you know, really hype on this mobility thing. You know all those motorcycles they had before? Uh, they're turning into bikes. So they're basically turning in their Harleys for some Schwinn's 10 speeds. You know, it's not not what you're looking for when you're trying to invade a country. Um, yeah, moving forward this this worst intel ever and to add on to these issues, they had a couple things delaying them from beginning this Operation Blue, which would really cause some trouble. They had to fight in Crimea, they weren't done with that. The long story short, they had to go in and fight the Russians there. There was a central position, you know, eventually did some uh, they encircled them, you know, Kessel Schlacht, key term again. Um, that was the first thing they ended up Germans won there, and then it took some time though, time and material. Second problem was there's a, a major Russian counteroffensive at another place that's really hard to pronounce, Kharkov. We're gonna call it. Um, there's a lot of big rail hub, a lot of uh, industry. Again, battle of encirclement. The it was a big long fight, um, but Russia hits first, and it was basically a big combined arms uh, deep battle. You know we've we've heard these terms before: combined arms. You know, armor, artillery, and air all combined once with infantry. They used some deep battle tactics, used echelons and all this stuff. Uh, you know, We talked about this, just attacking deeper and using echelons to advance forward um, and take care of the rest of that. So that's the operational level. Uh, the Germans fought back, and uh, spoiler alert, they, they encircled them, and they won. Uh, the Russians moved their second echelon forward, so their entire force was able to be encircled. So that was really bad news for them, and the Germans took a lot a lot of prisoners. So that really, that's section two. Section three, Operation Blue. Connor.
1: So uh, Operation Blue for the Germans was planned out in four separate phases. They're going to start in Ukraine and move south. So for phase one, which began on June 28th for them as Joe went through the uh, two delays, uh, they're gonna, their operational objective was the city of Varanze. Not really sure how to pronounce that. A lot of weird words. And there they're going for their uh, classic encirclement tactics. They are going to attack from mul- multiple different uh, directions, encircle this city. Uh, phase two, they would move down the bank of the Don River and they'd link up with another army at M- Milorovo. And from there, they'd split into two separate army groups: uh, Group A and Group B. Uh, one group would attack the city of Stalingrad, while the other would pr- provide security to uh, prevent the S- Soviets from making a counterattack. And after phase three was completed, they would drive to Caucasus for the Caucasus uh, for the oil fields to keep their army functioning.
0: Yeah, so if you check out the map in the book, it really shows there's just basically this big river, like Connor said, the Don River. Uh, there's this, there this little bend in the river, and the, and the Germans really want to encircle the, the Russians there, or the Soviets there, and really defeat them. Because the biggest thing that you need to take away from this section is that the Germans needed to destroy some Soviets, they needed to take them out, take them prisoner, and get rid of them. But what the the Soviets do, which is really smart, which is their strategy, was retreating. they were, the book says they were trading space for time. Is the a part of the elastic defense? Admittedly, things did not go perfectly. Um, eventually, with Stalin issuing order two twenty seven, not a step back, or you know, because a lot of people were retreating when they shouldn't be, and so. But the retreat was a lot worse for the Germans. You can't encircle people if you can't reach them, so uh, they would just. Activated their encirclement tactics too early and used up a lot of supplies. It, it was an absolute mess. Blue 2, absolute mess. Uh, they needed to hit. They needed to hit hard. The plane was collapsing around them because uh, they just kept going down in supplies. And then Hitler makes a move, very, very controversial, and he splits between attacking Stalingrad and attacking for that oil down Caucasus. And this dual offensive. A lot of people say it was dumb, but it was basically they didn't have any options. It was Stalingrad, like we said before, useless on its own. You needed the oil, is you know you had to have it, uh, and then the Caucasus, whatever, uh, is a quarter of the world's oil was at stake. So you needed to get it, and you can't have one without the other because I mean Stalingrad is useless by itself. You have to have it to get the oil, and so but they have they have a, they do a great job. But this is another classic example when they say you know. The strategy or tactics win war. The tactics were going great for the Germans, driving down for that oil. But the initial drive, it, it sputters out. They run out of stuff. They run out of people. They get to uh, some early on oil fields, but they don't really get to the the honeypot, you know, because they run out. They had to resupply Stalingrad because the Russians counter counterattacked, as they always do. And it really drew a lot of troops and supplies away. And then this, this Stalingrad fight, this... This is a street fight. A uh, little side note, Connor and i we were in uh, same D T platoon. And Connor, I'd like to harken back to our experience at Shea Village, as a lot of us, a lot of us had some good experiences there. Uh, counter-offensives in uh, urban environments, such as Shea Village or Stalingrad, um, really don't work out too hot if you're not organized, and that's what that's what the Germans found out really quickly.
1: Yeah, definitely have to agree with Joe there.
0: Yeah, it's really tough because you'll you'll advance so far, and these these offensives will go crazy, and then. Counter offenses are even more. If the, Rus- the Russians were very patient in this street fight. A lot of times it was hand-to-hand. They talked about fighting in squads. That was the primary level of fighting. They called them battle groups. And it was just crazy because they'd fight building to building. It wasn't a series of battles of certain bu- locations. It was battles of certain buildings. There was like a fight for a grain elevator, for those of you who know what that is, all those Midwesterners out there. Um, they used, they used blown-up buildings as cover. They, this The defense was very important for Songrad. And basically, another term that could be considered a key term was the strategy of, I guess this would be considered an operational move of hugging, where at night, um, they would move, the Russians would move closer or the Soviets would move closer to the Germans so that the uh, Luftwaffe could not attack them, could not bomb them in the night. And that was, just, that was just a great move, great move on their part. And the steady progress was made, the, the Germans were losing steam. Um, there's another operation that came down that the Germans did. They took all of their combat engineers and tried to break this main Russian or main Soviet defensive line. And 400 yards might as well have been 400 miles in that situation. And they could not. They could not get through. They stopped They stopped 400 yards short. And this this Soviet counterattack, uh, Operation Uranus. Alternative pronunciations for that. They encircled the Germans in the city, and there's there's really tough German response. Things didn't go great. Uh, the Soviets came from the north, came from the south, and Germans wanted to break out. Hitler said, stay put. They were going to do airdrops, but they weren't even getting close to getting enough supplies in there. And, you know, they just they, shot, they had shot their shot, and they, there's, no, there's no beating the Soviets at that point. Um, after losing Songrad... And Kalkakis, they they just that, that was it. Shooter shoot did not did not make on this try. So they realized very quickly this is a turning point because Russia would not be would not be pushed around. Stalingrad really turned it around. Next section here, we're going to talk about another key term: El Alamein Axis defeat in North Africa. This is Germany versus Britain. Basically, like we talked about before, think of it as the Alamo. It was the first defensive stand for the British against the Germans, which is huge for morale. A big time stuff because the whole country, as Connor mentioned earlier at the beginning, uh it was just going through a lot of bombardments, a lot of crazy stuff going on. But this this first battle, uh the, the, the commander there, Monty, Bernard Montgomery, another key term, was able to funnel, canalize, I think might be another word for that. Um the Germans and were able to stop them the first time. This is great. So they got a little they were feeling themselves a little bit. And then Monty came up with this uh this controversial move, the frontal assault. It was a combined arms move again. They were gonna move slowly, slowly, and go with the bite and hold technique where they were gonna make that, that little that big punch through the line and then they were going to hold and hold the flanks. And that would prevent the encircling of the Germans. The British, very smart, learned very quickly, learned this time Learned the lesson. No one circling from the Germans this time. So this operation was Operation Lightfoot. You throw that at you throw that into paper. Going to be really hard pressed for an instructor to not give you an A on that one. So you know, second battle of Alamein, Operation Lightfoot, one and the same. Good good stuff there. It started off with a thousand gun simultaneous barrage that lasted about six hours. Germans were not a fan. Um, and then they eventually made their the British made their push through. It's pretty anticlimactic, as much as the barrage sounds really cool. They just kind of pushed the push the Germans back, and then it was a long it was a long drive back. Um, but really, this was just huge. Um, this was just huge for the British because they were able to make that punch, push the Germans back, and it was it was in North Africa. You know, from the entire campaign, the Germans have been beating the British. Finally, the British were able to make a stand, and they they make their stand, kept the Suez Canal kept themselves from being cut off from the rest of their colonies, kept their sources, kept their ports. This is huge. As, as much as I make the battle sound out to not be so climactic and everything, it's, not, it's no Stalingrad, you know, admittedly. But it was a huge thing for the British, and it was really getting the Allies going. So after this victory, you know, it was time, to, it was time for the British to follow their shot and really just chase after these Germans. Keep pushing them back. And uh, that's, that was really, it really validated the war effort for everyone back home. So everyone back home was really happy with this, obviously. And it was a turning point for the British. All right, final section here before we get into some discussion. Guadalcanal, finally, gets to talk about some Americans. It's good stuff. Operation Watchtower was basically this 1st Marine Division going in on Guadalcanal. They landed at Guadalcanal to the much the surprise of the uh, enemy naval construction unit there. Um, as you can imagine, Marines versus a naval construction unit was probably a little lopsided uh, for the good guys. But the book mentions this is a huge improv. This is on the fly. This whole operation really just went fast. Uh, obviously MacArthur was involved, so you have that you have a key term. Admiral King was also involved, but this this first this first move on the Guadalcanal really set the stage. They were able to secure an airfield. And that would pay off huge operational dividends as we move forward. And basically, this whole campaign, if you remember one thing, this whole campaign of Guadalcanal surrounded a ridge on Guadalcanal and protecting an airfield. And the Marines did it, and they did it well. And you love to see that. Basically, this Admiral King, uh, you know, commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet, really wanted to protect these Solomon Islands. A lot of planning, like we mentioned before. Army-Navy rivalry coming out. MacArthur versus King. They, Mac was saying it was his lane because this this area they were trying to hit Ray Ball. He it was it was his lane. It was his area. They cut it up. Um, he wanted to make some risky moves. Admiral King wanted to be a little safer. Wanted to work their way up the islands and really secure Ray Ball because he understood, I think more so than Mac did, the importance of protecting those aircraft carriers. Because there's this the space in between these islands. If you check out a map, was called quote the slot. And it was the most hotly contested. Um, area of the ocean at the time. There was constant. There's there's literally a paragraph just listing, not even explained, just listing all of the naval battles that happened in that area at this time. It was it was nuts. A lot of a lot of action. A lot of a uh, lot of fighting going on there. Um, eventually, Marshall General Marshall broke the debate. It would be fr- three phases. First phase would be the naval uh, infiltration of the Solomon Islands, specifically at Guadalcanal. Second and third phases would be advancing with the army up. New Guinea, and then the attack on Ray Ball would all be under Mac. So he was happy. He won out. That was good. Um, no one was really ready. Everyone was really rushed. Uh, talks about in the book how one of the Marine commanders was told he wouldn't have to fight until 1943. Um, you thought you're you're fighting now. So he didn't like it at all. Not enough logistical support. Um, Mac and this Marine commander actually asked for the delay. Admiral King came back in and said Marines would go in on a shoestring. He didn't care. Marines were going, and so they went. But what happened, eventually, once they were on Guadalcanal, they were kind of stalled because these carriers, uh, the commander of the carriers, actually took the carriers out of the fight, which severely limited the Marines' resupply and air support. That was, that was very, very detrimental to Marines' operations on Guadalcanal, so they had to just continue to fight, fight their way with very little air support, very little uh, resupply. But that's what the Marines do, and so it was this this book, I guess when you get to write history books, you get to make up words. they call this a triphibious campaign, so all three of the fibii were involved on this um air sea land, all that good stuff, and it was interesting they talked about how operationally. The, the United States owned the ocean during the daytime, and the Japanese owned the ocean during the nighttime. But each they obviously attack each other, but that's just kind of how things went to resupply. And it was, it was just battles of attrition. You know, they talk about this Edson's Ridge, which I think could be another key term. Edson's Ridge is the name of this ridge on Guadalcanal that you have to remember that was defending that airfield. Also named the Bloody Ridge. It was, it was a tactical and operational victory because we held the key terrain tactically and operationally we held the airfield. Put that in your essay. Put that right there. Um, Japan was strapped for supplies because their supply routes were obviously overseas, long ways away. They didn't, their, their pilots barely had enough gas just to get to the area, let alone stay and fight, so they only had a few minutes on objective, which is great. This, the, the climax of this whole event was at Guadalcanal. Um, there was this another commander that was there, just made a lot of bold moves. Um, they used flamethrowers for the first time, some pretty cool pictures in the book of that, and just fighting for this ridge like crazy. And eventually they, uh, the Marines held their, held their ground, held the ridge, held the airfield, and we were able to advance and hold the Solomon Islands and really stick it to the Japanese. Now into the discussion section. Connor, what was the most interesting part of the reading to you?
1: So, uh, Joe, I gotta say, the most interesting part of the reading was the battle of uh, Battle of Stalingrad. Just its importance for the war, and just like thinking about the fighting, just fighting in the city day and night must have been must have been bonkers, just I mean, nuts. And I'm just gonna p- throw a quick plug out there for the movie Enemy at the Gates. Not sure if any of you have seen it yet. I would check it out. Pretty sweet movie, but uh, really important battle. The Soviets were able to stop stop the German army from advancing. They're looking Germans were looking for quick victory in the west they're looking to get those oil fields so they can move half of their army to the east to fight to fight on that front but with the soviets stopping them there the germans were like wow we're uh we might be pretty screwed now we might be stuck in a pretty long war
0: yeah some rough times when they lose on that eastern front and then you talk about el alamein not looking good on the western front or southern front i guess north african front and then their ally getting getting it handed to them by the marines um, so that that was that was really it. What else anything else about the reading connor?
1: The one thing that still just blows my mind is uh with the operation blue part of the plan was that uh the casualties would exceed replacements like what what commander goes into a battle thinking that just just stupid, stupid really if for future operations for all you uh future p l s out there really don't plan on that. not a good idea, not setting yourself up for success.
0: hey. We're all about setting ourselves up for success here on the Millard Podcast. Great points, Connor. All right, so that that all right, we're done with the academic part. Um, We're just gonna, you know, we're gonna on the podcast. We're gonna bring in some people, just get to know everybody. uh, Mostly first, just maybe bring on some instructors in the near future. Uh, I'm just trying to get a second microphone, so if I could ever get that from the mailroom, it'll be good. Uh, So Connor, number fifty three, captain, Army lacrosse team, attackman. Um, Q's week going up to the Carrier Dome. I'm um, gonna take it to the Orange. What are your What are your thoughts about playing in the Dome this weekend, and what what can we expect?
1: Hey Joe, just really, really looking forward to it. Coming off a big win against Rutgers last weekend, moving to a uh, top ten in the nation. I mean, Q's is one of those teams you dream about beating as beating as a kid, young lacrosse player. And playing up in the Carrier Dome, nothing like it. Really looking for just another victory up there. Come back, party at fireside with the boys. Absolutely.
0: Reservations at Club FS for a victorious Army Black Knights lacrosse team. Very good. Uh, now, Connor, I am your roommate. You are my roommate. Um, you, you, at the beginning of the semester, you made a bold move, operational decision or strategic, to bring in a magic bullet into the into the room. Can you talk a little bit about your decision on that?
1: So, uh, I really got to give credit, cite my sources. So, uh, number number 40, Johnny Sertik on lacrosse team, I... Uh, Patriot League Defender of the Year preseason. And uh, NJ28, Nate Jones, uh, really brought me on to this idea. Get a smoothie maker, get frozen fruits, throw some uh, peanut butter powder in there, milks, greens, whatever you want. I'm telling you right now, changes your life. I have two smoothies a day. I just feel, feel like a healthier person because you know you're not getting all the nutrients you need in the mess hall.
0: No, I, I mean, mess hall's getting better. We're going to give them credit where credit's due. You're absolutely right, though. Uh, I think our room... Averages probably around three smoothies a day, which is pretty good. Um, we're we're contending for the the Patriot League title in smoothies per day, um, but yeah, Connor, you're you're also. In, I see you have a yoga mat here. Um, thoughts behind this? Is this some kind of healthy living initiative you're leading the lacrosse team in?
1: Yeah, so I uh, got this yoga mat off Amazon. Gotta be honest, got it last week. I've only used it once for a little light stretching. Really, bring hoping to bring that into my routine a little more.
0: Absolutely, absolutely huge. Connor, Connor Glancy, ladies and gentlemen, Philly's own. Um, I mean, Connor, what else you got?
1: I just got uh, one last plug for another member of the Cross team possibly stepping up, going into the podcast soon. Uh, John Rudy, don't know if you know him, but guy's an absolute weapon. He's going to be a great addition to this podcast. Guy's, guy has a lot of great ideas. Might not, might not seem the smartest, but he, he gets the job done. Oh, yeah,
0: Academic Weapon, John Rudy. Don't count him out in the pool either, my survival swim buddy. So, uh, Connor, thank you very much for coming on the show, and I just appreciate your insight.
1: Hey, Joe, happy to be here. Looking forward to uh, making a couple more appearances. All right, thanks, roommate. BQs.